Um, this morning, as we jump into Malachi 2, we have a bit of a sobering topic. As I was considering in my own mind how to prepare or prime the body to hear what Malachi 2 has to say to the priests, uh, I must confess that a number of stories flooded through my mind. Uh, fair warning, this week's message on Malachi 2 is about priestly failure and their failure to lead and teach the church or the, the people of God appropriately. And I thought I could start with any number of relevant, high-profile failures in church leadership that we've seen recently. But the truth of the matter is I don't really have to go through those stories again, do I? Because all of us are aware whether the names that flood our minds of recent high-profile ministry failures, of churches that have gone off the rails because of false teachings, or teachers that have gone off the rails because of moral failure. And so I don't have to recount all those stories because the reality is this situation is all too relevant to us in 21st century America in the church. This morning's message is going to deal with both the benefits of ministry and pastoral success and the cost of ministry and pastoral failure as we look at the priests in Malachi 2. Hopefully you've had enough time to find it in your Bibles. We're going to read the first nine verses of Malachi 2 here together. It says this, And now, O priests, this command is for you. If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I have already cursed them, because you do not lay it to heart. Behold, I will rebuke your offspring and spread dung on your faces, the dung of your offerings, and you shall be taken away with it. So you shall know that I have sent this command to you, that my covenant with Levi may stand, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant with him was one of peace and life, and I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many from iniquity. For the lips of the priests should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth. For he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. And so I make you despised and abased before all the people, inasmuch as you do not keep my ways, but show partiality in your instruction. Let's pray together as we go into this text. Lord, we're so thankful for the chance to be here together this morning, for the joy it is to worship you and honor you for the chance to come into your throne room and sing praises to you along with the hosts of heaven and your church. Lord, we think of all the other people that gather today in your name around the world, and we lift our voices with them in declaring your awesome might, your incredible love for us, and the gift we've been given in salvation through Christ. Lord, as we deal with this challenging text this morning, I pray that you would guide our discussion that you would speak through me, that you would encourage this church, and that you would glorify your name. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, if you've been with us over the last few weeks, you know that we've been in a study entitled Worship Restored from the Old Testament book of Malachi, the last book in the Old Testament. Uh, we're addressing what it means to offer Hebrews 12:28 acceptable worship to God. What does it mean to worship God truthfully and acceptably in his sight. We started the second dispute last week in chapter 1, verse 6, and we talked about worthless worship. 
Malachi addressed how the people and the priests were offering blemished, lame, blind, unacceptable sacrifices to God. And God rebukes the people and the priests for that practice. This week, we're dealing with the second part of this discourse in verses 1 through 9 of chapter 2. I'm calling this week's message, Ignorant Worship. Ignorant worship, essentially what happens when the people don't know any better, when they're not taught any better in worship. The outline this morning, you may have picked up on this flow as we were reading through it, breaks into three parts. You're like, it always breaks into three parts. I don't know if that's a pastor thing or if that, but this is how the outline works, at least for this week. First of all, in verses one through four, we see God's threat to his priests. God's threat to the priests. We're going to look at what he tells them. Second, we'll see a godly example of Levi held up, and we'll see Levi's example for the priests in verses 5 through 7, what the priests were supposed to be doing, what they were supposed to be aspiring to. And lastly, in verse 8 and 9, we're going to see God's indictment of the priests, his verdict on their priestly ministry and what that means for us. We're going to lead off by addressing who we're talking to. Again, God's threat to the priests. Look at verse 1. The beginning of this section starts off with, and now. This is an interesting way to start the section. And now actually indicates a climax or a conclusion. He's bringing what he's been discussing for the first chapter or so into resolution. In fact, this is the same terminology as judgment is impending on the priests that God uses of Cain when he judges Cain and Abel. And now, and he issues a curse on Cain for his killing of his brother Abel. He addresses once again the audience. We talked about it in chapter 1, verse 6. Remember we said, If I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests, who despise my name. He comes back to that subject and he says, And now, O priests. Last week he talked about how all the people were bringing unacceptable offerings. And this week he turns his focus laser-like on the priests of Israel. Which begs the question, why even bother studying this at all? We don't have priests anymore today, do we? We remember from our Hebrews study that Tom took us through that Christ is our eternal, perfect high priest. We read that in chapter 7 of Hebrews. So we don't need a human intermediary. We don't need a priest to stand up here and go between us and God because we have the perfect high priest in Christ. So what's the relevance of this address to the priests? Well, one of the things you'll notice as we walk through this text is God specifically goes after one function of the priestly ministry here. He goes after the priest's failure to teach and instruct the people rightly. And so in that respect, I would say there are two ongoing relevancies of this discourse, this discussion, this command and rebuke to the priests. The first is the fact that we all, as the priesthood of the believers, have an ongoing responsibility. One of the things that's taught consistently in the New Testament is all of us are commanded to teach one another, to encourage one another, to challenge one another. It's exactly what hopefully we did last week before we left. And so there is a relevancy of this to all of us. But secondly, there is also a priestly ministry given to pastors, elders, and leaders in the church. Not in the role of being the intermediary, not in the role of offering sacrifices, but in the role of teaching and instructing the church in what right worship means and what right living looks like. So last week, as I said, I was preaching to the choir. This week, if I may, I'm preaching to the pastors. 
So bear with me here on this because it is relevant for every single one of us sitting here together. Because once identifying his audience, God then commands what comes in the form of a threat. You'll see it in the if-then format. God says, if you do not do this, then I will respond accordingly. Look at verse 2. The first of two priestly failures. If you will not listen. He says to the priests, you are not listening. You are ignoring my instruction to the people. Remember last week how we read from Deuteronomy and talked about how God had commanded their best in worship? He had specifically told them, don't offer me blind, lame, and unacceptable sacrifices. And the priests weren't listening. They were doing whatever pragmatically made sense. They were doing whatever was convenient for them. And God says, if you do not listen, if you do not seek my instruction through my word, there's a curse that's going to come upon you. There's going to be implications of that. What were they supposed to be listening to? He says, if you do not listen to this command, it's implied, right? The command is God's word. What they were ignoring last week is the specific instruction in Deuteronomy not to do what they were doing. And the priests weren't even bothering to worry about that. They weren't seeking God's will, and they weren't looking in God's word. He says, if you don't listen. But he also says, look at verse 2, if you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name. He looks at the priest and he says, you're not listening and you're not taking to heart to give honor to my name. See, we tend to think of the heart intuitively as the emotional center of our being. But for the Old Testament Hebrews, that wasn't so much what they meant. The heart wasn't so much where the emotion came from as it was the decision-making and life direction center of their lives. What he says is he's looking at them and he says, the decision-making and directing power within your life is not chiefly about giving me honor. You're worried about yourselves primarily, not me. To give honor to my name. See, this is everything we talked about last week. Remember when we talked about God's glory and God's honor and God's respect? He looks at his priests and he says, you are not doing what I've just told you to do. You are not seeking to honor me from the very core of your being. It's God's glory expressed in everything we do. He's saying fundamentally what your problem is is not just an external failure to conform to my law. It's a heart issue where you don't want to seek my glory. You're not doing what you do out of a heart of praise and worship to me. The remedy for this, I think, and what expresses well what they were failing to do is found in Psalm 119 in the Old Testament. Flip to the left, keep your finger in Malachi, and flip to the left in your Bibles to Psalm 119. This became a theme verse for me when I was in middle school and high school. If you're looking for a theme verse, you could do a whole lot worse than this text in Psalm 119 for your life. Speaking of God's word, and all of Psalm 119 addresses God's word, David pens these words. Verse 9. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart, I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Notice the decision-making center, storing up God's word in our heart so that we then don't do something out of consistency with that. Verse 12, 
Blessed are you, O Lord, teach me your statutes. With my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies I delight as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. This is the exact opposite of what the priests were doing here in Malachi 2. They weren't listening to God's word, and they weren't seeking to see that word impact their hearts, their decisions, their life center. And so what we learn about faithful ministry here, and this is relevant for all of us, but specifically for those in leadership, faithful ministry cannot stem from self-interest and personal promotion. It's not about the leaders. It's not about the ministers. It's not about us. Instead, it begins with a genuine relationship with God and obedience to his word. What motivates us in ministry as the priesthood of all believers and as specifically those that lead and teach is a relationship with God and a ministry of his word. And that's what the priests were failing to do. They didn't care about God's honor and they weren't listening to what God had to say to them or to his people. And did you pick up again on the phrase, give honor to my name, says who? The Lord of hosts. We run into this, the Lord of hosts, four more times this week as God continues to establish his greatness over not only his people, but the world and the universe and the hosts of heaven. But he goes from saying, if you won't listen and you won't honor to my name, then. Verse 2 says the implications, and we see Five disciplines, five things that will fall on the priests if they fail to listen. He says, then I will send the curse upon you and I will curse your blessing. He says, I will curse you and I will curse your blessing. Now it's worth noting here, what is the blessing of the priest? What is it that the priests, the Levites, have been blessed with? Now if we remember back from Deuteronomy 28, and this is why we read Deuteronomy chapter 6. It's interesting, when I was planning this out and selected Deuteronomy 6, I wasn't thinking Father's Day at all. But his command there is, listen to my word and obey it. If you obey it, these are the blessings. If you disobey it, these are the curses. We see that again in Deuteronomy 28, where he lays before the people, Moses' final words to Israel, if you will do what God has commanded, here are the blessings you'll have in the world, or in the land. If you disobey, here are the curses you will have in the land. But specifically, he gives a particular inheritance and a particular blessing to the Levites. Flip back in your Bibles to Numbers chapter 18. I know we're flipping around here a little bit. I promise we'll settle down here in just a minute. But Numbers chapter 18. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers in your Bibles. Here, God is describing for the people the specific task, the specific role that the Levites, that the priests were to fulfill within the promised land. And he promises land and all sorts of space to all the other tribes. And then he says this to the Levites. Look at Numbers 18, verses 21 through 24. To the Levites, I have given every tithe in Israel for an inheritance. In return for their service that they do, their service in the tent of meeting, so that the people of Israel do not come near the tent of meeting lest they, be, lest they bear sin and die. This is the job that the Levites weren't doing when we get to Malachi. But the Levites shall do the service, excuse me, the service of the tent of meeting, and they shall bear their iniquity. 
It shall be a perpetual state throughout your generations, and among the people of Israel, they shall have no inheritance. They didn't get any land. For the tithe of the people of Israel, which they present as a contribution to the Lord, I have given to the Levites as an inheritance. Therefore, I have said of them, they shall have no inheritance among the people of Israel. All the rest of the tribes were promised allotments of land in the promised land. The Levites, the priests, were promised two things. The blessing of getting to minister in God's tabernacle and God's temple. And the support and the tithe of the service they would receive for doing that task. He says, you're not going to receive an allotment of land like the other tribes. Instead, you get the opportunity to minister before me and before the people in my temple. And they had totally forsaken that responsibility and that role by the time we get to Malachi chapter 2. They had lost the wonder of the fact that they had the opportunity to offer sacrifices to the living God. And they didn't care. And so God promises to undo this blessing. He says, if you will not fulfill your role as priest, then you will no longer minister before me. If you will not fulfill your role as priest, then you will no longer be supported by the tithe and offerings that the people give to the temple. His warning is that I will revoke your ministry and support. If you will not do the job I have called you to do as priests in my temple, I will revoke your ministry and your support. I will do away with it. And in addition to that, look at verse 3. He says, behold, I will rebuke your offspring. I will rebuke your offspring. Now, literally, the term here is seed. And so there's some discussion amongst commentators as far as what seed is he talking about. Is he talking about the seed that we plant out in the field? Or is he talking about seed as in children, as in people that would come after them? It could mean either of those things. And it's interesting to note that in Deuteronomy 28, verse 4, I'm not going to go there right now, but I'd encourage you to read it this afternoon. The people, one of the blessings they're promised is fruitful fields and children. And in revoking that, he says, I will rebuke your seed. Essentially, he says, I will make you unfruitful. This implications of this curse that I'm going to bring on you as the priests of God is going to spread beyond just you. It's going to have negative implications for the people at large. And then lastly, in verse 3, we read this line. And this is an interesting one. Behold, I will rebuke your offspring and spread dung on your faces, the dung of your offerings, and you shall be taken away with it. And now if I haven't had the kids and middle schoolers' attention yet, I have it, right? We're now talking about dung in church. Okay, what is he talking about here? This is kind of a strange phrase. Literally, dung is the word awful. And what it conveys is the idea of everything that wasn't acceptable as a part of the sacrifice. It was the organs, and it was the refuse, and it was all of the parts of the animal that weren't acceptable to be offered on God's altar. And what the priests were commanded to do with that is they were to take all of that leftover, and they were to take it outside of the city, outside of the temple, and burn it, because it was unclean. It was the leftover. It was the waste. And it's interesting to note that God looks at them and says, you're bringing me your worthless, blemished sacrifices and what is even left over of those sacrifices, I will spread on your faces. He's saying, I will make you unclean like the offerings that you are offering to me. I will put what makes everything else it touches unclean, and I will spread that on your faces as priests. 
You think you have a special place? You think you have a specific role and that you're untouchable? I'm going to use your own polluted sacrifices to make you unclean and make you rejected by the people. It's a pretty severe criticism that God offers for his own priests, is it not? If they won't listen and they won't obey and they won't seek to honor and glorify God, he will reject them, he will reject their ministry, and he will make them unclean. But why? Why does he do this? Why would God do this to his own priests? Look at verse 4. The implication here is, he says, So shall you know that I have sent this message to you, that my covenant with Levi may stand, says the Lord of hosts. Why would God do this to his own unfaithful priest? He says there's two reasons. I want you to know my command, and I want you to know my covenant. I want you to know that I am the one that has told you to be faithful. I, the Lord of hosts, am the one you are ignoring, the one you are rejecting, the one you are belittling in your unacceptable offerings. But second, and I love this part, he says, that, that my covenant with Levi may stand. He affirms God's priests. Now that seems really, really strange when he's just rejected the priests in the temple. And I think what's going on here is he's rejecting the unfaithful priests to prepare for the one faithful priest. Again, remember Malachi is the final words before 400 years of silence before Christ enters the scene. Flip back in your Bibles to one more time, I think this is the last one, one more time to the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 33. A lot of us are familiar with verse 17 here, but sometimes we have a tendency to forget verse 18. Jeremiah chapter 33, verse 17 and 18, we read this. And this is the part we're familiar with, verse 17. For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. You go, yes, the Davidic king, God promised that Jesus would come and be the true king, that David was the precursor to, right? But then verse 18. And the Levitical priests shall never lack a man in my presence to burnt or to offer burnt offerings, to burn grain offerings, and to make sacrifices forever. How does that work if God has just rejected his priests here? Well, I think we saw how that is eternally fulfilled in Christ in Hebrews chapter 7 when we were studying that. Where God says, I have given you a new priest, a priest after the order of Melchizedek, and he will minister forever. He was the sacrifice, and he is the good priest. The one who perfectly fulfilled what the priests were supposed to do in the Old Testament. The priest that I rejected in the book of Malachi. And so I think this is anticipating and being fulfilled in the person and work of Christ, in his priestly ministry, when he comes on the scene. Dave Drebo is going to talk about the 400 years of waiting here in a few weeks while I'm gone, and hopefully that will be an encouragement to you. The summary here is he looks at the priests and he says, if you will not seek my glory, if you will not listen to and obey my words, I will make you unfruitful and I will reject you as my priest. I will reject your role. I will reject you as the ones who minister before me to God's people. Here's the principle that I think we need to keep in mind from this, God expects his shepherds to instruct his people to love, honor, fear, worship, and obey him. 
God expects his shepherds to instruct his people to love, honor, fear, worship, and obey him. And it is so easy to deviate from that. It is so easy to give people what they want to hear. It is so easy not to teach everything that is found in this book. Just teach the popular stuff. Just teach the easy stuff. Just teach the encouraging stuff. But God said, my people are offering unacceptable offerings and you priests are doing nothing about it. You have failed to tell the people that is wrong. And as a result, I'm rejecting you as my priests. But we don't just get the negative here in Malachi. We also get an incredible positive in verses 5 through 7 as Malachi lifts up Levi's ministry and we see faithful ministry in verses 5 through 7. Levi's example for the priests. Look at verse 5. We see Levi's covenant, first of all. Verse 5 says, My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. He looks at the priest and he says, look back to your forefather, Levi. How did he minister? The covenant I gave him was one of life and peace. The benefits of God's covenant love and choice. God chose Levi to minister in his tent, and he said it was a covenant of life and peace. And notice the terminology here, and I love this. It's so consistent with what we saw the first week. And I gave them to him. I initiated, I chose Levi, and I gave him a covenant of life and peace. This incredible opportunity to minister before me to my people in my place of meeting. But he also says it was a covenant of fear. And he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. Does any of this sound familiar from the last two weeks? This fear and awe, this necessary reaction reaction to God's fatherhood and God's lordship in our lives. This is exactly what we spent the last two weeks talking about. This love and peace and acceptance based upon God's choice and this fear and honor and reverence of who God is. The principle at play here, what he's holding up as Levite, a faithful shepherd was, is that faithful shepherds must have both a joy in God's love and an awe of God's glory. To minister to God's people, whether it's the priesthood of all believers or whether it's those that publicly teach and preach, faithful shepherds must have both a joy in God's love and an awe of God's glory. You have both. As we talked through these in the last two weeks, is there both a joy of the incredible salvation and love we have from God and a fear and awe of who He is? that motivates from the heart your desire to search God's word and your desire to live in obedience to him. In addition to Levi's covenant, in verse 6 we see Levi's character. And this gets even more personal. Verse 6, true instruction was in his mouth and no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness and he turned many from iniquity. We see at least... Three aspects of Levi's character here. Three aspects of what faithful leadership, what the priests were not doing, but they were supposed to be doing. True instruction, godly living, and faithful correction. 
Three aspects of ministry that he says, this is what Levi did, this is what you should be doing. True instruction, godly living, faithful correction. Let me give you just a few examples of how the New Testament pastoral epistles flesh this out. These should be familiar passages, but I would encourage you, if you're looking for something to pray over the church, pray over the succession planning, read through the pastoral epistles of 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus and pray what is found there for the sake of the church. Here's just some of what we read in those books. Titus 2, verses 1, 7, and 8 says, But as for you, looking at the teachers and preachers of the word, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Show yourselves in all respects to be a model of good works and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame having nothing evil to say about us. Teach what accords with sound doctrine. 1 Timothy 4.12 says, Set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. The instruction and the godly living that the priests were denying in their own lives. And then lastly, what I read from a, a couple weeks ago, 2 Timothy 4.2, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. This is the model that God holds up as his standard for those that lead his people. And this is what the priests were failing to do and ultimately are rejected for. See, I think the point here that we have to take away is that faithful shepherds seek to provide truthful instruction, exemplify godly living, and to model faithful correction. This is the task. We're all called to it on some level, but those that teach and preach and lead are called to it in a specific way. And then he summarizes everything he's been saying in verse 7. Four, the lips of the priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. What is the ideal? What is it that the priest should be doing? What is it that we should be aspiring to? To guard knowledge as God's messengers. And at this point, I want to address just two pretty practical topics for us as a church. The first is I just want to say what an encouragement the pastors and elders are at Faith Bible Church, to me personally. I have never seen a group of men so committed to the faithful preaching and teaching of God's Word and to seeing that lived out in the life of the church. But I should also say that this paints an interesting picture of Levi where if we read the Old Testament, we know Levi wasn't perfect either. And neither are our elders and pastors. The truth of the matter is we desperately need your prayer support as we seek to lead and teach the church. We cannot do it without you. We cannot be faithful in this task without your help. We do not operate in a vacuum. We do not do it by ourselves. We desperately need your prayer support as we seek to do that. The second thing that is maybe a little bit more on people's minds is the fact that we are in a season of looking for the next senior pastor as a church, right? It is really easy in a season like this to think all we need to do is just get resumes from the right people, get it out on the right websites, and we're going to find the right man. What this story details for us is the reminder that this is what you get when we work through human wisdom alone. We desperately need God to do what only he can do as we search for the next senior pastor. And as a result, I would just say again what we've said in the past. 
I would encourage patience, and I would encourage prayer from all of us. As we wait for God to act, as we make sure we don't miss the mark on who we're looking for here and what we're seeking by trying to rush it or being overly pragmatic, we desperately need to be patient and wait on what only God can do, and we need to prayerfully ask him to do what only he can do. But secondly, did you note in there that there's also an encouragement to the people? Look back at verse 7. For the lips of the priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth. People should seek instruction from his mouth. And so there's also two things I think we need to talk about when it comes to all of us and our role in this. The first is a challenge to seek instruction. Are you seeking instruction? It has been said that the growing disciple is easily edified. When you're reading the text over the course of the week, when you're growing in your knowledge and love for God, my job and our job as elders is so much easier. Aspire to be an active Bible learner and a proactive self-feeder. Aspire to engage with God's word for yourself, to seek instruction, and to come prepared on a Sunday morning to have that encouraged. As a point of practical application here, I would encourage you to read Malachi 2, verses 10 through 16 before next week. Spend the week meditating on that text and come next week expecting there to be a dialogue about what the text is talking about. Seek to be an active learner. Seek instruction. But secondarily, I can't move beyond this point without taking a little bit of time to celebrate the church's long-term faithfulness in this area. The truth is to go past a text like this and to not celebrate the work God has done in this church of raising up people who are avid lovers of God's word and seeking instruction and seeking to apply it in their own lives would be remiss of me. And so I just want to thank you on behalf of the church, on behalf of the elders, on behalf of the pastors, for those of you that week in and week out dive deep into God's word and seek to understand what he's saying and seek instruction. It makes our job so much easier. It makes our job so much more joyful when we know that you're seeking God's will through God's word as well. So thank you for that. See, the point is, what I think we need to take away from this, and kids, this is the key point for this week about acceptable worship. Acceptable worship is grounded in biblical truth. That should sound quite familiar over the last few weeks. And encouraged by faithful shepherds. Acceptable worship is grounded in biblical truth and encouraged by faithful shepherds. It's exactly what the priests were failing to do that God holds up as the example for elders and shepherds in the New Testament. But unfortunately, we can't just talk about the good. Because in this text, not only does he hold up the blessings of faithful ministry, he also speaks to the negative implications of poor instruction. And we see the indictment of the priests in verses 8 and 9. Look at verses 8 and 9 with me briefly. But you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. See, this is the example of Levi. This is the way he walked with me. This is what he did before the people. But you have turned aside from that way just like what he was saying before talking about Levi. He said, you have quit listening and you have quit 
seeking my honor. Just like Proverbs talks about two paths, you are now walking on the wrong path. And so as a result, your instruction to the people is missing the mark. Did you see that? You have turned aside from my way, and you have caused many to stumble by your instruction. He says to the priest that your rebellion against me is resulting in the people's error. Your instruction is missing the mark, so the people don't know any better. The people are ignorant of the way they're supposed to be worshiping me. And you have corrupted this covenant of Levi. As a result, you have caused disdain to be shown for this covenant that I made with Levi. I'm not going to lie to you guys. Texts like this are what keep me up at night on Saturday nights. As I pondered this over the course of the week and the implications of missing the mark with the teaching in such a way that the people don't know any better because they've been wrongfully taught keeps me up at night. It is a high standard that God lays out for those that lead his people and teach his people. Right? James 3 says, let many of you become teachers, for teachers will incur a stricter judgment. Hebrews 13 talks about having to give an account to God for the way we exercise our ministry. And God's judgment here on the priests we see in verse 9 and 10. And so... Or verse 9, excuse me, there is no 10. <laughs> like, not in this week. And so I make you despised and abased before all the people, inasmuch as you do not keep my ways, but show partiality in your instruction. He says, I'm going to judge you before the people so that everyone sees it. And your judgment is going to be proportionate to your offense. The reality here is that God is the ultimate judge of those that lead his people. Even though we see public failures across the spectrum of the church, the result is the public defamation, the loss of character, the loss of ministry, all of those things pale in comparison to God's ultimate standard in the way he will judge those that have led his people astray. We have a tendency to think that we have to win these things in the court of public appeal, but ultimately God will judge. It's before God that his leaders have to stand one day and give an account. And that's what keeps me up at night. See, this is a difficult text to wrestle with. It was hard for me, but I expect it's also challenging for us as a church, particularly in our current season. Because God looks at these priests who he had raised up to do ministry for him, and he says, if you won't listen, if you won't obey then I will make you unclean and I will reject you and your ministry. He holds up Levi as this godly example of ministry, faithfully instructing the people, faithfully give, living a godly life, faithfully correcting the people and turning them from their iniquity. But then he turns back to the priests and he says, you've been rejected. You haven't listened. And so I'll reject you. Thank goodness that ultimately Christ comes on the scene as the great high priest, as the one who perfectly fulfills this model in his ministry, both to us and for us. But I think some of the takeaway that we need to be reminded of from a text like this is 
challenging and in some ways depressing as it is in the 21st century that we live is first and foremost that worship is grounded in biblical truth. We have to keep this in mind. When we talked about the first few weeks, in the, or in the first week of our lesson about the different things that are held up as the point of worship, about it being emotional, about it being exciting, about it being professional, about it being comforting to me. Instead, in John 14, verses 19 through 26, which I would encourage you to read this afternoon, Jesus says, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. Our worship must be first and foremost grounded in biblical truth. And you're going, didn't we say something like that last week? Absolutely, we said something like that last week. And we're going to continue to say it. It's not the last time it's going to come up either. Worship must be grounded in biblical truth because we cannot worship one whom we do not know. Second, worship is encouraged by faithful shepherds. The church over the course of years has erred on both sides of this. Has erred on the side of thinking we don't need shepherds at all, we're good without the teaching and instruction. And has erred on the side of thinking those that are leading and teaching are perfect. Both to harm within the church. The truth is that those that are godly models of leadership and teaching are gifts given to the church but are first and foremost sheep themselves. We're fallen, we're fallible, we're not perfect, and we get it wrong sometimes. But God has given leaders and teachers to the church to encourage ministry and worship. I love the way Ephesians 5 puts this, and this is our theme passage for adult ministry as a church. Verse 11 and 12 in Ephesians 4 says it this way, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fray by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human coveting, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so it builds itself up in love. That is God's ideal. That is his pattern. Faithful teachers and shepherds equipping and encouraging the body to do ministry both to each other and to worship God. That's what's held out. That's what the priests were failing to do, and that's what all of us should aspire to, both as individual members of the church and particularly as leaders, elders, and teachers in the church. Because the implications and the repercussions for failure in this area will probably never be known this side of eternity. Let's pray. Lord, I, I personally confess that I feel the weight of this text on myself and on those of us that are pastors and elders of this church. But I pray that the weight of this text would also be felt by your people in this church. 
of our absolute ineptitude in our own strength and power to accomplish this task, of our need for you to raise up godly men and women to lead your church, of the need for you to do what only you can do, of the need for you to protect our character and our lives. Lord, the the stories of the destruction and the idolatry and the rebellion of your people against you in the Old Testament because of the failure of your shepherds is a daunting and scary reality. And so we ask that you would be at work in our church, that you would make us people who desire to be listeners, who desire to seek instruction and encourage and pray for the leadership. And Lord, that you would protect us as leaders. Help us to be faithful in our ministry of the word and teaching and instructing the body. Help us to not shy away from saying everything it says, even when it's hard, but help us to not go beyond what your text says either. Lord, we know that it's just that any church is one generation away from total abandonment of the gospel and the truth of your word. So we ask that through your grace, you would grant us to continue to be faithful in this ministry. Help us to be dependent upon you as we step forward in faith to the next season of ministry as a church. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.